a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, ready for another year. This is our first podcast recording of 2023. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, uh, Alyssa Jobson, speaking from Brussels as well. And today we are super excited to start off the year uh, with a conversation with uh, Baroness Catherine Ashton. Kathy, as she has uh, very graciously asked us to call her, served as the European Union's top diplomat, um, as well as in other senior foreign policy roles in the European Union and the United Kingdom. She is currently a Woodrow Wilson Center scholar and the author of a brand new book. As the European Union's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security from 2009 to 2014, Cathy had a leading role in diplomatic efforts to resolve some of the major crises of the time, many of which still reverberate today. During her tenure, she led the EU's efforts to tackle piracy in Somalia, encourage democratic transition in the wake of the Arab Spring, and coordinate a response to Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. We want to underline very clearly that there is still time to avoid a negative spiral and to reverse current developments. And we call on the Russian leadership not to take steps to annex Crimea and instead to take steps to de-escalate this crisis. She has received particular praise for her roles in facilitating an agreement that normalised ties between Kosovo and Serbia in 2013 and, in that same year, reaching an interim deal with Iran to curtail its nuclear programme, which paved the way for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. All topics that we have discussed here on War and Peace, so I think this is going to be really exciting. So Kathy's book, And Then What, uh, is available, is going to be available from your favorite independent booksellers in late February. Uh, we got a sneak preview, and it's, uh, it's really a very uh, personal, in-depth look at the high-level diplomacy through these huge crises that she was dealing with uh, during her tenure. And... Um, I really do recommend it. It is a um, very accessible read. And I say this in the best possible sense in that you just you feel that you're listening to somebody who is explaining to you and telling you these stories of um, how these negotiations took place and uh, how these puzzles and these challenges were overcome or not. Um, so, Kathy, uh, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. So in your book, you talk a lot about collaboration and negotiation and, of course, diplomacy, right? It's a book about diplomacy. But these days, when we look around the world, and indeed when we look at many of the crises that you were working on and how they've evolved, uh, the operative word does not seem to be diplomacy. It seems to be war. Uh, give war a chance, uh, seems to be much more the um, the thought of the day rather than try to find a negotiated settlement. Um, is that true? Uh, is that kind of where we are now? Or is there still space for diplomacy, even when the crises are with Moscow, with Beijing, with Tehran? 
So part of the reason I wrote the book now was looking back over the experiences I'd had and recognising that many of the issues that I raise in the book are still at least as big a problem, if not bigger, today. And to, in a sense, point out how important diplomacy is, not as appeasement, not as a way of failing to tackle aggression appropriately, but rather if you can find solutions that prevent problems becoming crises, then that's a really good use of diplomacy. And even when you are looking at war and chaos, eventually, whatever happens, eventually you have to resolve the residual problems diplomatically. So when I met with the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo years after conflict, we were dealing with the residual effects of what had happened. And as I would say to them, you can go back to that. You can go back to fighting. You can go back to the chaos, if you like. You will still end up in this room, probably, maybe not with me, because maybe there'll be a, then a different high representative, but you'll still end up having to try and resolve some of the problems diplomatically. So my answer to your question is that there always has to be room for diplomacy. It always has a role to play. It's by no means an easy option. It's incredibly hard to do. It requires people of great courage to be prepared to put themselves through that, and it requires leadership to achieve it. But it really is important, and it remains important more so now than ever. What lessons do you think you can draw for negotiators today uh, from your tenure as the EU's top diplomat? Are there any um, any tips that you would have, any any specific pieces of advice that you would give, uh, for example, if and when Ukraine and, and Russia get in the room together? You know, how, how can the negotiators engaged in those discussions try and bring the sides together? So I always say to negotiators, that there are lots of lessons, but the top two would be, number one, decide what it is you're trying to do and stick to it. Don't add. Don't take away. Do what you say you're going to do and be very clear about what you're trying to do. And in any negotiation, it's important that you recognise perhaps the limits of the negotiation as much as the potential of it. People will always want to add. The second is... The greatest skill you have is to listen. You've got to find ways through the problems of crises. And part of that is by listening to what's going on and understanding better what's happening in order that you can find an answer. And linked to that, perhaps perhaps the third and the biggest one of all, is you've got to work out what the process is that you're going to use. You can waste an awful lot of time in international negotiations arguing about where you're going to meet, the venue the size of the table, who's sitting around the table, and so on. And yet all those decisions will determine what kind of negotiation you're actually going to have. So if you take Ukraine and Russia and the end of this war, eventually, one thing that needs to be thought about long in advance is who's going to be sitting around that table working out what happens? What is going to be the role, not just of, obviously, Russia or Ukraine, but others who have an extraordinary interest in what happens, not least Europe, but also who are going to be involved in uh, dealing with the outcomes of whatever the negotiations are. And if you start to think about what the process is, it also starts to give you the agenda that you're going to be working to. 
So stick to what it is you're going to try to do. Do it well. Listen very carefully to what's going on and work out what the processes you're going to use. So I want to follow this, this Ukraine story, but because you know the situation very well, you were coordinating the EU response when the war began in 2014. Um, but in 2014, a negotiated solution was not found. The war did begin. And now um, we're at almost a year of an even bigger war, uh, a war so much bigger that many people think that the war in Ukraine actually began in February of last year rather than uh, back in 2014. So how do you evaluate uh, the EU's response so far? Are they doing the right things diplomatically? Um, is, is diplomacy still the answer there? So the EU's role, I think, has been really interesting because, in my view, Russia underestimated the fact that the Europeans would stick together and stand together in being determined to supply Ukraine where they could uh, with its military requirements, but also to take the kind of diplomatic action, i.e. sanctions, that was necessary. And that's been a good thing to see, uh, an important element of how the EU can work together in times of crisis and act quite quickly. Because when you've got 27 countries, speed is often the hardest thing to achieve because each has got to go through its own domestic um, sort of situation before they can get to the point of giving a European response. So that's, I think, really important uh, to think about when we think about what Europe's doing. In the broader context of looking back, I don't think in 2014, I don't think in 2020, which was the last time I was in Kyiv, that we expected to be where we are today. There was uh, an unexpected attack by Russia to take Crimea, an unexpected attacks into the Donbass in 2014. We didn't think that would happen, but it was in a context that was quite different of Ukraine going through this dramatic series of changes. And we thought at the end of that, that this was pretty much going to turn into what I think I call in the book the wedge that President Putin likes to create circumstances in nations where they're unable to operate as a sovereign whole country. Look at Georgia, look at what's happened in Moldova with Transnistria. You've got countries where bits of the country are not really under the control of the government and therefore they can't do things like join other organisations or they can't develop their economy the way they'd like to because they're dealing with this problem. And we sort of thought that was sort of where it was going to get stuck. Nobody really anticipated or very few people anticipated that we'd end up where we are now. And I think the importance of what Europe is doing is that it, it has an important role both in terms of the diplomatic action, but it will, I hope, play an important role in what comes next and the and then what question, which applies to this, which is when this war is done, whenever that is, there is a role for Europe in the context of helping to support Ukraine through its reconstruction and its future development, not least with the EU itself. 
I want to come back to the and then what, but I actually want to follow up on something you said. You described sanctions as a form of diplomacy. Um, I think a lot of people would disagree with you, right? Uh, sanctions are a form of, you know, they're an economic instrument, but they're, um, they're a punitive economic instrument. They're not, uh, they're not talking. They're, they're not fighting either per se, but under certain, certain circumstances, sanctions can have, um, weapon-like effects, right? So can you elaborate a little bit about why you see them as a diplomatic instrument, uh, rather than an instrument of coercion? Or can diplomatic instruments be instruments of coercion? I wouldn't disagree with you. I think in the context of what, I, how I feel about it is you've got this kind of toolkit if you're a diplomat of things that you can use. And it's all about what people might call carrots and sticks. For me, it's about moving the relationships across a spectrum that on the one hand has people in the freezer, i.e. no communication, no contact, coercion of that kind, economic coercion of that kind, and so on, right the way through to the oven, where you've kind of got a recipe that you've put together and baked into something rather lovely and tasty that is a strong and positive relationship. And you're always moving the relationships between nations or groups of nations along that spectrum. Um, and you use the tools that you have available. So it's not really diplomacy. You're quite right to pull me up on that. But it is part of the diplomatic toolkit of things that we can use to try and get a change of behaviour. Because the point about sanctions is they're too often, in my view, seen as an end rather than a means to an end. But the purpose of sanctions is to make change, is to stop something from getting worse and hopefully reverse it. It's not just to say, right, we've taken sanctions, job done. Far from it. It's about using it as a tool while you then get the job done, as it were. And in terms of the the sanctions that Europe's uh, um, deployed against Russia, I mean, they've been the strongest, I think, that, that Europe has ever deployed. And... Um, I mean, one of the questions that comes up, up a lot in our work is, you know, whether or not European unity around those sanctions, around the support to Ukraine can persist, will, will persist. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, they've done very well so far. It's back to my point really about means to an end, not an end as well, because if sanctions are really effective, they often have an impact on the, the country imposing the sanction. And that can be occasionally quite dramatic in terms of economic issues. And that means people's jobs. So I used to describe it that when European politicians arrive at the European councils, they don't take off their rucksack, mark domestic problems and leave it at the door. They take it in with them. And these are politicians who are fundamentally and at their core domestic in their outlook. They're trying to think about their own nation. And so working together on something which has an impact on their own economies and their own people, it's important to bear that in mind when you think about uh, things like sanctions and holding together or taking steps. They are domestic in their outlook. And because they're domestic, there's always an opposition waiting to take over. And oppositions exploit the weaknesses in governments. That's what you do. So you can see how all that has to be played into the mix. Having said all that, I think Europe is stuck together because there is a recognition that this has to end, that Ukraine needs to be a free sovereign state, making its own decisions and not being attacked by an aggressor. And that means for Europe that there is very little room for political nuance on that thought. 
that is what is. And therefore, they stick them together, I think, more, more closely. But over time, if sanctions are just used as the only thing that you do, and there is no outcome, there is no way of solving it, then you do see the wearing down of a willingness to continue to deploy the same weapon or the same bit of the toolkit without there being something else that happens as a result of it. Um, and that, again, plays back into the domestic arena. How long are people prepared with energy prices high, with the challenges that are told to them to be about the Ukraine crisis, which, of course, in the main they are, then that also has to be sort of played into this. So it's important that we don't just use sanctions, important that we use them well, and important that we do it in ways that means that Europe can stick together. We are more united than ever. We are united and we stay united. So you've kind of described the and then what for Ukraine, right, which is that Ukraine retains its sovereignty, that Ukraine is successful. But I think one of the questions that we struggle with is you can see this vision for the future, but it's not 100% clear how the sanctions and the military aid actually get us there. Do you think there is a vision for this? Or do you think it's a little bit of a muddling through approach of these are the tools we have? We know what we want. We don't quite know how to get us there. But, you know, this is what we're trying to do. I mean, I, I feel like the Russians have a pretty clear story for there and then what, right? They defeat Ukraine, everybody accepts that they have won and that they have the right to throw their weight around in their neighborhood as they define it, and then we can move on from there. It's not entirely clear that the West has articulated their vision quite as vividly. Do you disagree? I think it's for Ukraine to articulate its vision rather than the West. I mean, the most important thing in all this is that Ukraine decides its future and we must be careful not to decide it for it either. They are very clear that they see the return of their land, their country, to its former state where they control Ukraine and where Ukraine has strong and positive relationships where it chooses as being what it must have as its end game. And our job is to help and support them achieve that. Now, in negotiations, when and if we ever get to that point, it's up to them if they want to do anything different. But they're very clear that this is the proposition that they put to us and the proposition that we therefore support. And the, the point about and then what, and the part of the reason the book is called that, is because it's important that at least we have some idea of what it is we're trying to do when we start down a road. When crises happen, they are rarely crises that have come out of nowhere. They sometimes feel like they've come out of nowhere, but they rarely have. And it's a question that I think those involved in trying to do crisis prevention are constantly asking us is why we don't look more at the bubbling up issues that can so easily turn into a crisis and try and resolve them before we get to that point. Uh, and I think when it comes to looking at your response in a crisis, one of the things that is so important is not just to respond immediately, which is important, 
but to think about the commitment that you are then making into the future. The commitment we have to make to Ukraine is decades long. It's not going to be five years or ten years. It's decades of support and so on, simply to repair and regenerate Ukraine and to help it move forward. It's going to take a long time. Crises often take decades to appear. Why do we think we can solve them in five years or three years or two years or six months sometimes? So I think the important part of it for us is Ukraine decides its future. We have an impact on on how that future will turn out. And we have, in a sense, to recognise a commitment that we need to make, which is long-term enough. And what about the future for European security more broadly? Ukraine has um, exposed uh, some of the the cracks and weaknesses, maybe, in in, um, the EU's foreign policy and its and its uh, collective security is there a vision for that going forward do you think and and what what do you think it should look like well there are lots of different ways of looking at what the european union is i i like to think about taking a helicopter above it and looking down on what the european union and the and broader europe i'd include britain and norway and others in that and look at what's around it to see what the focus of European Union collective foreign policy and security policy ought to look like. And you see it sort of writ large. You've got the Western Balkans and the challenges that we see currently every day at the moment in Serbia and Kosovo, but the broader challenges in Bosnia-Herzegovina and so on, and the future of that region inside the EU. You look at what's happening in Libya. You see what's happening in in Egypt. You look at the, the, the needs that countries like Tunisia have economic growth. You can go to the far north and look at the Arctic and all of the issues there uh, that include the role of the Arctic in terms of trade links and, and so on, as well as, of course, environmental issues and the importance of climate change, which is the number one issue we all have to confront, and so on. And you can look east and, of course, Ukraine, Russia, what, what's called in Europe the Eastern Partnership countries, Central Asia and so on. You see all of the challenges. And if you look at them all, you also see all of the ways in which European foreign and security policy ought to be thinking about its role and its capacity to be able to help tackle the problems. A combination of things. It's a combination of the diplomatic effort. It's a combination of the economic effort. It's a combination of the support on security issues. It's working together to provide opportunities on trade that will enable countries to develop and to grow and to have economic strength, which in turn translates into what they offer their own people, especially young people, because so many countries close to the EU have very young populations that need to know they have a future. And then you look at, well, what can the EU do on issues to do with, for example, in the Arctic, on environmental protection? and so on, which is a big security question for all of us. And you can also look at how does the membership of the EU, the soft power pull that is the European Union, how can that have an effect in the Western Balkans to help support economic growth, but also political change that will help those countries grow and develop peacefully and securely? I mean, what you're talking about is, to a large extent, a reframing of security from some of the ways we were perhaps taught in school to think about it. 
And I think that is something that has been underway in our heads and to some extent in our policies, but it makes it, it's harder to get it into our policies. And I, you know, one of the things uh, in kind of this category of topics that I think about a lot is gender, right? If you look at the war in Ukraine, it is so easy to see how gender permeates the narratives about this war, how relevant gender is, you know, in a, with the Ukrainians talking about their fighting women, with the Russians talking about fighting as a very masculine thing. I mean, it's just, it's so in your face. And then you can take a step back, you can see similar things in pretty much every other conflict. And in many of the kind of non-conflictual, but still security uh, topics that you just mentioned. Having spent your career in this space as so much of this was changing, I mean, do you think we're getting better at integrating gender, not just into the analysis, but also into the response? Or are there still big gaps? And if so, do you have any clever ideas for how to better address them? There are always gaps. And the best way to address them is for people to see women doing the jobs so that they see that this is what women do. And my tiny anecdote about this is that when I began as high representative, I was creating heads of delegation posts across the world, converting commission um, responsibilities to be uh, additional um, in terms of foreign policy. And there were very few, a handful of posts that were led by women. By the time I left, I think there were 49. And the reason for that was because women started to apply for jobs. I interviewed and appointed every head of delegation because I felt it was important. And I insisted that on the shortlisting group, there was always a a woman. Um, Because foreign policy, security policy had always been very male for all sorts of reasons. And women came forward. And a number of times women would say to me, well, I saw that you were doing that job. So I thought, well, Maybe she is looking for women to come forward. But it's also about the very practical things like making sure that the timing of appointments meant that they could get kids into school at the right time. You know, there's lots of practical ways in which women are prevented indirectly from doing jobs. I I remember this as a justice minister in the UK government when looking at the fact that judges were expected to move around the country at a moment's notice. Well, Lots of people can't do that, but especially women are still affected by the caring responsibilities of younger and older people. So there are, there are lots of things that, that one should be um, clear have moved forward. There are more women involved, but there are still far too few. And it's still going to be important to continue to promote the idea that women are as good, if not better, at many of these uh, responsibilities and jobs as anyone else. My experience, uh, having worked on the Iran negotiations with two brilliant women, Wendy Sherman from the US and Helga Schmidt from the EU, my experience of being the woman in the room in the Serbia-Kosovo negotiations is that actually when you get men and women working together well, that's the best combination because we've got different experiences and different, not skill sets, but different approaches. The problem for many women in security policy is that security is equated with being tough and hard and all of the kind of military aspects. And for a lot of reasons I don't quite understand, there's an assumption that women don't automatically understand 
all of those issues, which, of course, we do perfectly well. Um, and the more women that can show and develop their expertise in this field, the better. I think we are with you on that, <laughs> for certain. <laughs> Especially the part about women being more capable. I think all three of us are clearly more capable than many of our peers, if not all. <laughs> so I'd quite like to sort of to come back to your role as the first ever high representative uh, for the European Union, which is essentially the European Union's foreign minister. Um, how has that role, which I think is now on its third um, occupant, uh, Josep Borrell, how has that role evolved since you first held it? And also what constraints does the holder of this position face, given that they in effect, have to represent 27 governments, 28 during your tenure, all of whom have competing interests and um, competing levels of, of, of power and influence in the com- in the conflicts um, that you were engaged in in resolving. It'd be interesting to hear from you how that role has changed and and how it is constrained or not. So the. I mean, the big difference that I hope I handed on to my successor, uh, Federica Margarini, was she didn't have to create a service. We've done that. And a lot of the first tenure was about inventing the European External Action Service and getting the agreement of the institutions, the council, that is the member states, the commission and the parliament, to doing that. And then putting people in place and working through all of the consequences of that, of creating these sort of delegations, embassies across the world, and then getting countries who were recipients of this new idea to understand what it was. Because we shouldn't make an assumption that just because you put an EU delegation in a country that they think, oh, yes, they kind of would ask me, well, what is it? What are you trying to do? What's different about it? And so on. And the question I used to often ask was, how do they know it's Europe as opposed to Germany or France or Belgium? Uh, and so on. Um, I think, secondly, it's become more ingrained in the structures, and that's important in Brussels, as you both know, that, that the structural framework of Brussels had to shift a little bit to accommodate a quasi-institution. And it's not easy for long-term institutions to shift. So now it's become part of the furniture in a good way, I hope. And I think also the member states particularly have got used to the idea that this is where decisions can be put together. On your questions about the kind of the 27 or 28, in my case, coming together, I used to enjoy very much the council meetings. Um, People always say, how could you possibly? It was all day. You were sitting, chairing it all day. And the reason was because it was... Much easier than people think. In my five years, we met, I think, 50 times formally and 12 times informally. We never took a vote. We never failed to reach agreement. Uh, And I'd like to tell you it's my brilliant chairmanship, but actually what it's about is that there is a great willingness in Brussels to reach agreement. I often describe it like this. The ambassadorial post in Brussels that a country sends you to is the only place where you will have seen to have failed if you have simply stuck to your domestic position and not found a compromise. Success is when the EU has a position. Your success is determined by what contribution you make to that. 
yes, you are making your country's position clear, but your your job mainly is to find a way to position that such that there is a conclusion at the end that everyone agrees to. Everywhere else in the world, your job is to stick to your national position regardless and to promote it and push it regardless. In Brussels, that's a sign that you're no good as an ambassador. And in the foreign policy world, their job was to get ready the Foreign Affairs Council such that it reached agreement. Sometimes it had to reach agreement between ministers because there were still knotty problems to be worked out, but we never failed. And that was in part because if you as a nation have an issue that is really significant and important to you, having the strength of, in my case, 27 others coming to support you can make a big difference. It not only amplifies your voice, but it can bring a lot to bear on the problem. And in return, you will do the same for someone else. So it's a give and take relationship, in part about geography and politics, and in part about information and knowledge. So the people talking about what's going on in Ukraine were talking about it for years beforehand. Countries were but Ukraine, countries that have got long history of relationships with Ukraine, so too with the countries um, of the Arab Spring, countries that were directly affected by what happened and who understood and knew much more than others. Similarly, the Nordic countries and the Arctic and so on. So you have this phenomenal ability to use and exploit in the nicest sense of that word all this information, history, geography, that allows Europe to come up with solutions that should be and increasingly, I think, could be better solutions than individual countries can do. And that's the power of what Europe can achieve and the importance of of pulling it together. And the high revs job is a combination of sort of leading it and chairing it and moulding it a little bit. But their main job in that context is to pull it together and embody it. And as I would always say, it wasn't just about my voice, it was about the 28 other voices saying the same thing that made Europe stronger. So, Kathy, sadly, we're out of time. There's so, I mean, I feel like there's so many more questions um, that we could uh, dive more deeply into. Um, but uh, sadly, we cannot. Uh, so I just want to thank you for joining us on War and Peace and, uh, and sharing your insights. Well, thank you. I've had a great time talking to both of you. Uh, we encourage you to pick up Kathy's upcoming book, And Then What?, which is scheduled to come out next month and provides a really interesting first-hand account of top-level diplomacy, um, which is told through Kathy's own involvement in some of the 21st century's most thorny peace and security problems. And in the meantime, as you follow the 21st century's continuing uh, peace and security problems, uh, you should be reading the work of Crisis Group. Uh, you can see that on our website. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson, and I'm at Olya Olaker. I'm also on uh, Mastodon as at Olya Olaker. I'm still figuring it out. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. Uh, but our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. 
If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email them to us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. Um, you can find us on all the main podcast platforms. So I think we are off to a terrific start uh, for 2023. And we're looking forward to chatting with you some more in about two weeks. Until then, though, goodbye. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>